Stage Door Sessions by Broadway Direct. In this podcast, we have in-depth conversations with Broadway's brightest, bringing you what's new, what's noteworthy, and what's coming next to a stage near you. I'm your host, Elisa Gardner, and this spring we'll be speaking with some of the artists whose talents are standing out at a very busy time in a very busy Broadway season. Before our conversations with each week's guests this season, we will be kicking off every episode with a look at what's new on Broadway each week with Broadway Direct's own Paul Ark Smith. Paul, it is Tony's time. How are you? It is. It very much is. I'm doing well. Yeah, it's I feel like every week we get on here, we're like, oh, it's so busy, Um, which it just holds true to our intro, how we say it is the very busy Broadway season. And it just continues to be Um, this week. We got the Tony nominations. There was the Meet the Tony nominees event, which will have content on Broadway Direct very soon. Always an exciting time. Yeah, yeah. And um, leading the pack with 13 nominations, we have Some Like It Hot, followed by Anne Juliet, New York, New York, and Shucked. New musicals, of course, are always, they're eligible for the most nominations. So they're going to be getting the most nominations. Uh, That's how it goes. Um, What what struck you about this year's uh, list of awards or nominations, I should say? Yeah, yeah. I think there was a lot of love for shows that were close, which seems to not be the case in a lot of past years. It feels like there's always a recency bias yeah. um, and like shows that like will open in March and April just to like be fresh in like the voters heads and yet there was so much love especially for the plays from the fall season mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and actually one of the fresher shows which was Science in E. Brewstein's Window which just opened on April 27th had um, a shocking omission I feel like two shocking omissions maybe with um, Oscar Isaac and Rachel Brosnahan not getting nominated yeah which yeah. I thought they were both incredible in that. And of course, the nominees that they are there are all great. It was a very packed season, but it was just goes to show that like, you know, it made a great point of how like it doesn't matter when you open. It seems yeah. like they're like they're changing that now, which is great to see that like any time of year you could be thought of for the award. Yeah, well, some like it hot, for instance, was was back in the fall. Um, and that certainly did not hurt its uh, turnout at all here. No. Um, and I agree with you uh, absolutely about Oscar Isaac in particular. I mean, Anne Kaufman, the director of that production, described the part mm-hmm. as a Jewish Hamlet. <laughs> mm. And uh, he is on stage throughout that whole production. And it is the just a blazing performance. And I he was is. very surprised that it was omitted uh, as well. Um, I agree with what you said as well about um, uh, shows getting love that uh, had already closed, including um, Ain't No Mo, which did not run that long. Into the Woods, of course, which was a was yes. a huge critical favorite. And, uh, and K-pop did pretty well, got a few yeah. nominations. Yeah. I was happy yeah. to see that score nomination for K-pop. And for Into the Woods, I was from the start, I was always, you know, I knew Sarah Burrell to get nomination. I was like, she was the talk of the town, I feel like. And I was like, that has to be nominated. But mm-hmm. what I was secreting from the first time I saw that production at City Center, and you know, there was already like rumors that it was gonna transfer to Broadway. I was like, Julia Lester has to get a Tony nomination. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I yeah, am yeah, so yeah. happy she snuck in there. She is just like one of our brightest young talents, and her little red was just such a complete scene stealer every single time she was on stage. So I'm so happy to what they called her name. Yeah, yeah. She was definitely a delight in that show. And speaking of Anomo, one of the plays that was from the fall that, you know, made it in despite a crazy pack season. Um, best play is filled with Anomo, Between Riverside and Crazy, Cost of Living, Fat Ham, and Leopoldstadt, with three of those being Pulitzer Prize winners and yeah. Leopoldstadt coming in. Um, after winning the Olivier for best play. So it is a very packed category of just some incredible plays. 
Yeah, it really is. I mean, this year it's going to be very, very difficult, uh, I would imagine, for Tony voters of who I am. One, I I should confess (laughs) to choose. I am totally going to be stumped. I mean, between Riverside and Crazy, I was on the the Pulitzer uh, panel when we chose that back in 2015. And it's uh, I love Stephen Adley Gerges. I mean, just wonderful, Mm -hmm. wonderful play. A great showcase for a great actor. Um, And um, Fat Ham is just uh, was was such a sensational take on a twist on a tragedy, on a Shakespearean tragedy, Mm -hmm. a a comic twist on a Shakespearean tragedy and a cost of living. I'm also a huge fan of Leopoldstadt is is a glorious play. I mean, it's going to be a very, very tough choice this year. Yeah. And all those plays had um, actors show up in the nominations. You know, I just saw Fat Ham recently and was so happy to see Nikki Crawford nominated. She is just so incredible in the show and totally like just makes like all of her moments the best. Um, oh, I agree with you. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a great ensemble piece. But she, for me, also really stood yeah. out. I just thought yeah. she was great. And yeah. also Brandon Uranowitz for Leopold Stadt. He... He might have my vote for the win. I'll just say that here. But wow. he was Where incredible. But yeah, and Jordan e. Cooper, just all around, just a great, great showing of plays and acting nominations. Yeah, Jordan e. Cooper nominated as playwright and featured actor, we should yeah. say. Yeah. And um, something I'm really hoping is that Kimberly Akimbo doesn't get ignored. It got eight nominations. Um, I think in the design categories, maybe it wasn't as, um, I don't know, flamboyant or flashy as some of the other big productions that uh, got slightly more nominations or a few more in the case of some like it hot. But uh, I just I think that's such a lovely musical. And I do hope it gets recognized in in some of the categories, at least. Um, Definitely. It still had a great turnout and. I mean, it was, it had eight nominations. And as you said, it's it's not a show that's as focused on the design aspects. It is like more, it is a smaller show, but like the cast all got three nominations, Mm -hmm. best book, best score, best musical. So I'm excited. I definitely... That was definitely a favorite of the season. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Victoria Clark, I think, is going to be a strong contender for Best Actress. Although all the acting categories are, are quite competitive this year. I was um, going to say, this is probably yeah. like the strongest turnout, especially in leading actress in a musical. Mm. What a great season. Yeah, yeah. So this past Tuesday, that's when the nominations were announced. And also shortly after that news came the news of Bob Fosse's dancing closing. They will be closing on Broadway on May 14th after 17 previews and 65 regular performances. This news came shortly after the Tony nominations where Bob Fosse's dancing was completely shut out. And it was just such a packed year that it didn't seem to make it into the Best Revival nomination. But this seems to be a trend in years past where a show will get shut out and then announce their closing shortly after. So you have uh, the rest of the week to see Bob Fosse's dancing and head on over to Music Box. Yeah, yeah, I was I was surprised by that, particularly Colton Krauss. I mean, all mm. the all the performers are amazing in the show, but uh, that was really a stand-up performance, and I believe they were nominated for other awards. I'm not I, just that. Certainly, the name has been circulating, and, and that is there are a number of, of wonderful uh, dancing and, and acting and singing performances in the show. Um, and uh, I went to see that show actually with a friend of mine who was a ballet dancer, and mm. um, she was just completely transported by it. So I'm. Um, I was a little surprised. Definitely, definitely. And just great to see all those dancers shine. But yeah, you have a little bit more time to catch it. Mm-hmm. 
And after listening to this week's episode of Stage Door Sessions, you can head over to your streaming service or wherever you buy music and listen to the original Broadway cast recording of Shucked, which was just released. The release comes fresh off the musical's nine Tony nominations, which included a nomination for Best Score for the show's composers, Brandy Clark and Shane McNally. Yes, and uh, Brandy and Shane are both big national names. This is their first musical, but they've written for people like Casey Musgraves and Kelly Clarkson, Blake Shelton, uh, Brandy Carlisle, um, right on down the line. And I, I, I love this score. I was really, I don't want to say surprised, because to me, uh, country songwriting and uh, musical theater songwriting have a little in common in that they're both driven by a narrative more more so mm-hmm. necessarily than rock and roll or blues. You know, by they're they're very much driven by storytelling, and um, and I just thought these songs were catchy and witty. And um, and I'm I'm pleased that they were recognized. It's such a great score, and it's great to hear the country music on Broadway. Like there's like shows like Bright Star, and for instance, that have this like country aspect to it that just I always adored. And this was just no exception. And mm. paired with the book from Robert Horn, like it just really like made such a full and hilarious musical. And I've already been streaming the album, and Alex Newell's songs are like always going to be the favorites. <laughs> they are just like complete showstoppers every single time. Oh, yeah. And and I think uh, Brandy and, and Shane certainly have a sense of musical theater structure. They were both mm-hmm. fans of musicals. And, um, you know, there is that element to their to their songs. There's, you know, the, the country, the blues, the jazz even. Um, but they certainly are not ignorant when it comes to musical theater. You can hear that in the songs. They really drive the story. I think they may get some some uh, love there. We'll see because it's a competitive category as well. Yeah, yeah. So go ahead and give that a listen and form your own opinion on what you think should take the award later uh, this season. And this week on Broadway Direct, we have a new piece with Elijah Ree Johnson, the latest star of MJ on Broadway, discussing making his Broadway debut in the Tony Award winning musical. And with Mother's Day around the corner, Broadway Direct spoke with some of the working moms on Broadway about balancing their career and their home life. Speaking with stars like Leah Michelle and 2023 Tony nominees, Victoria Clark and Betsy Wolf. As always, you can head to Broadway Direct for the latest coverage and news on Broadway, as well as across all of our social platforms at Broadway Direct. Well, thank you, Paul, as always. And uh, on to our stage door sessions of the week. Today, I am lucky to be joined by Carolee Carmelo and Grace McLean, the fabulous women who I think it's fair to say truly put the bad in Bad Cinderella, the new Andrew Lloyd Webber musical currently running at the Imperial Theater. Carmelo, who plays the heroine's wicked stepmother in the show, needs no introduction for anyone who has followed musical theater over the last 30 years. A three-time Tony Award nominee and Drama Desk Award winner, Carolee is given celebrated performances in the original cast of shows such as Falsettos, Parade, Scandalous, and Tuck Everlasting. And she's won more praise starring in original productions of Mamma Mia and You're in Town and revivals of Kiss Me Kate and 1776 two revivals of 1776, to be precise. That's to say nothing of the iconic role she's played in off-Broadway and regional productions, from Anna in The King and I to Dolly Levi and Mrs. Lovett, or of her many screen credits, which include The Good Fight, Smash, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and the acclaimed miniseries Dope Sick. Grace McLean, 
who plays the Queen of Belleville, a place we'll learn more about in short order, is an actress, singer, writer, and teacher who made her Broadway debut a few years ago in Natasha, Pierre, and the Great Comet of 1812. She's dazzled audiences off-Broadway as well, and with her band, Grace McLean and Them Apples. Grace is also a writer-in-residence at Lincoln Center Theater, where her original musical, In the Green, earned her a Richard Rogers Award, as well as a Lucille Lortel Award for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Musical. She's also a solo performer and a contributor to the Obie Award-winning investigative theater company, The Civilian's Cabaret Series, Let Me Ascertain You. Love that title. Grace Carolee, welcome to Stage Door Sessions. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh my Thank goodness. you for the Thanks lovely for introduction. Us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it's just what you ladies have done. So um, <laughs> you, you play, you both say, I think we can say the heavies in this show. Although, Grace, your character sort of gets a chance to redeem herself a little bit at the end. But well, she certainly tries. She tries. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that gets a... And a B plus for effort, maybe. But, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> but the queen, the queen and the stepmother are both pretty much consumed by vanity and self-interest. I don't think that's too harsh. And that puts you in sharp contrast with this so-called bad Cinderella who calls herself a loner and a freak, but is really just fed up with these standards of beauty and conformity in the kingdom of Belleville, where everyone is supposed to look perfect and be perfect in the most superficial way. The original book and story, we should say, are by Emerald Fennell, who everyone should know for her great work on the film Promising a Woman in the TV series Killing Eve. And it's definitely a very different take on the story of the fair maiden and the glass slipper. So I'd love to know what appealed to both of you about it and how you both became involved. Yeah, well, uh, f- first of all, uh, you go to an audition and you say, <laughs> I, I, can I have this job? Um, honestly, it was em- Emerald, Emerald Fennell. I I'm a huge fan of this woman's work. I loved Promising Young Woman. I thought it was just so brave and and funny and dark and wild. And I was surprised at every turn. Um, I I just think she's extraordinary. And I love the way she thinks and the way that she um, is just out for blood. She just is out to skewer. And I thought, gosh, if this woman is involved in a Cinderella story, I want to be too. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yeah, she she was a big a big draw, um, and yeah, it's been it's been fun to play one of her oh weird little meanie little characters. I think at, at one point Lawrence, our director, told me that uh, Emerald had referred to the Queen as sexy Putin, which um, <laughs> I quite I quite like, and I think I think it's correct. <laughs> Wait, are you implying that? Actual Putin is not sexy because well, Carolina, I think there are some, that's a different some Russian women who would. There are a few Russian women who would like to disagree with that. Certainly, I think you're right. I think you're right, but he doesn't wear a ball gown the way I do. That you know of. <laughs> like to see those pictures, uh, Carolee. What What about you? Well, um, as as Grace was starting to say, you know, you go to an audition, and sometimes you you don't really think about the project as much as, gee, I need a job. I hope this works out. Um, and, and for me, this, I, I made my Broadway debut 40. Is that right? No, it can't be 40 years ago. Is it? 
No, I think it's about 35 years ago in a show called City of Angels, which um, had lyrics by David Zippel, who wrote the lyrics to Bad Cinderella. So he and I made our Broadway debuts together back then in, in City of Angels. And I've always admired his work and him as a person. And so when I heard that he was uh, working on this, I was aware of it being done on the West End because I follow his career. And I knew that the show in London had started during the pandemic and had had all these opens and close and open and close because of the you know challenges of that time in the world. So when the audition came up, I was excited because it was his work and I have never done an original Andrew Lloyd Webber show. So that was exciting. And I just went to the audition, not really knowing that much about it, but just wanting to be involved and about 27 auditions later, I got the part. <laughs> no, really? No, I think I'm sure that's an exaggeration. A, a big it's a slight exaggeration, but there was, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of callbacks for this one. Yeah. So, well, it's a really meaty role. And I think the show has evolved since it premiered in London a couple of years ago. Most notably, another playwright, also a woman, was brought on board, uh, Alexis Shear, who got a lot of attention a few years back with our dear dead drug lord. And I mm -hmm. think uh, she writes with a similar fearlessness and flair for sometimes dark and body humor. In fact, there were a few times while watching the show that something made me laugh or even gasp a little. And I thought, who wrote that line? Uh, so <laughs> which one was it? So do you know how they work together? Can you tell us anything about that process? I don't really know. You know, Emerald wasn't, um, she wasn't around during this rehearsal process because she, she had wow. another project she was working on. Yeah. So this, which is why, why Alexis came on and, um, yeah, you know, that, that's a, there's a whole other world behind the table that we don't really get to see. So I'm not entirely sure how that collaboration um, worked out, but we, we just get to, um, we get to deal with the fruit of it. <laughs> That's right. We, we were handed pages. I mean, we had an original script that we started with and then during previews, they were, you know, changing things here and there. And, uh, and we would get new lines and honestly not really know if they came from Alexis or Emerald. Alexis was the one in the theater with us. So if we had questions or, you know, wanted clarification, she was the one that we went to. But I'm not really sure how they communicated with each other or whether they bounced things off each other. I'm not sure how that happened. Um, mm. But it was definitely a there were a lot of creatives in the room, a lot of collaboration trying to take place during that process. Yeah, I'll bet. Your characters also have a mysterious backstory, which is explored comically in this great number called I Know You. And um, throughout the show, too, as Carolee, your character pines to marry off one of her daughters to the prince, who's the son of your character, Grace. What went into building the relationship? between the queen and the stepmother, since that's widely considered a, a highlight of this musical. Oh, that's nice. We enjoy yeah. it. Me too. <laughs> the highlight for me. I know that. Yeah. Gosh, you know, it, I remember the day that we first started staging the number and Lawrence Connor, our director, had set aside like, I don't know, four hours or yeah, something to stage the number. And I thought, 
what are we going to do for four hours to stage this number? It's not like a big dance number. It's really yeah. just a conversation set to music. But um, and and we went through it, you know, and and figured out beats and and little comic moments together. And, you know, Grace and I sort of got to know each other over the course of the process. But I remember at the end of it that somebody said to me, oh, that went so quickly. You guys figured that out really quickly. And when when they did it in London, it took an entire day to stage that number. Whoa, I, thought, I didn't hear really? that. Wow, yes, no, that, that's wow. what they told me. So that's why he had set aside so much time for us. And I think he was pleasantly surprised that we figured it out as quickly as we did. Wow. Um, yeah. And in, in, yeah. in, in a draft form, you know, I just, I remember I, gosh, I just came with so many questions because, because the, the song itself is full of implication, subtle mm-hmm. implication. And, yeah. um, my dumb little brain had <laughs> just had to be like, well, what does that mean? What is, what does it mean this? Or does it mean that it can mean all of these things. Can we talk it through, you know? Um, <laughs> and, uh, which I think is a useful thing as an actor to come with the questions and, you know, is not afraid to ask them. And eventually, um, you know, the, the real fun of it is just the play, get, getting to play with my scene partner and for us to, um, to lob the implications at each other in our own fun, swishy, pointed little ways. Um, yeah, that's a real, the, the fun of it is, yeah, is, is playing with the other person, playing with Carolee. Right. And, yeah. and I think the hopefully the fun for the audience is, is watching the power get shifted from mm. one side to the other and who's, who's getting the best of the other one at any given moment. I think that's part of the fun of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, both these characters have, you know, some baggage, I would say, you know, Carol, you're <laughs> you playing, <laughs> I mean, as just as women and as characters, uh, Carol, you're playing a really iconic villainess, even a though it's kind of a new version. And Grace, you're playing a role that is not developed as much. And I think in the adaptations of Cinderella, we know best, certainly. But you're also playing with these cliches we hold about queens and princesses that are sympathetic and not Mm -hmm. so sympathetic. So in both cases, you clearly had to make your own mark on these fairy tale figures uh, that were in some way familiar. So how did you, aside from your, your chemistry with each other, how did you and the director, Lawrence Connor, work to develop those independently? Yeah. Mm. Well, it's, you know, uh, for a queen, we've already got a position of power and, 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 and status. And people in power, ooh, they got to get to do whatever they want. Um, <laughs> and also people in power are afraid of losing that power. <laughs> So, um, so much of what is driving this queen is, um, keeping her position. Yes. She, there's a lot of like, Ooh, sort of like seemingly goofiness and daffiness, but she knows what she's doing and what she's doing is trying to cement her position, maintain it. Um, when there's a whiff of, um, deviance, Ooh, heads are going to roll. Gosh, I wish we saw some heads roll. If we could only see a headless person in this show, you know, I just wish it were a little more absurdly violent. That's my one wish. I know that that makes it not a family friendly show, but that's where my little head goes is, you know, what are what are the strong armed tactics that this woman thinks she needs to administer in order to maintain the order of a kind of beauty that she deems appropriate or more than appropriate necessary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, you could have like a talking head like they did in Pippin. Of, of That's what I'm talking head. about. Yes. <laughs> There's an idea. Um, <laughs> some people have noted a certain irony uh, in that both the director and the composer of Bad Cinderella are male. I, I have to admit that's something I didn't think about at all because, you know, with the two women you have writing the book, especially and the strong mm-hmm. female characters in the show. Uh, but identity is a, a big concern nowadays, and this is a pretty young cast. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if gender differences were something that uh, you and the director especially ever discussed, or, or if maybe for that matter, having a male perspective was helpful or, you know, complementary in a way. You know, I think there's something about this show Um, the town of Belleville is aggressively heteronormative. Um, And that's sort of like baked into its, its problem. And, um, you know, that thing gets cracked open at the end of the show with the return of our hero, my favorite son, (sighs) Prince Charming. Um, And, (laughs) you know, that's, I think the way that this show is, 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 dealing with that those kind of sort of identity politics is by showing a world that is so incredibly black and white in all of its candy color. You know what I mean? Like there are certain expectations and um, roles, sort of gender norms, I think that are not necessarily pointed at directly. Like we don't give voice to it, but you can see in the way that like, that is what a woman is going to look like. And that is what those men are going to look like. Mm. And we just, that that's what we're hit with in this show until we get to the point where that gets cracked open a little bit. Now, I, I'm just going to say something that I, I do think is interesting and, and sort of fun too. Our, um, our Cinderella standby, Savvy Jackson, is genderqueer and is like very open about that. And it's really... It's fun to see them go on because they have just a different sensibility and a different take of, of in their in the way that they embody Cinderella. You know, it's 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 a, it's different than Lenady. They just bring a, a sort of a different flavor because of who they are in their identity outside of the show. So that's that's hmm. already percolating within their yeah performance. Yeah. Uh, Carolee, for you was, I mean, because I think Grace makes a really good point, actually. I hadn't thought of that in asking that question that, that, you know, the men are really just as shallow and stereotypical (laughs) as the women in this kingdom, or they're encouraged to be. They're encouraged to be. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that's definitely something about this, uh, this musical that is, uh, a, a source of parody, a key point of its parody. Mm. Right, right. And and they certainly are objectified uh, in a way that that women have been for many, many generations. You know, we the way they're they're costumed and the way they're choreographed, that mm. it, it's clear that they are performing for the pleasure of the queen uh, <laughs> in, in a way that yeah. <laughs> in a way that women have felt obligated to do for a very long time. So uh, so, yeah, to answer your question, I think. I think the fact that there were straight white men writing the show is helpful in a sense that they set the parameters and then these these women who are writing the book sort of crack it open. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. it's uh it's kind of the yin and yang of it all. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um an audience have been loving this show. Uh you've had some very prominent and enthusiastic 
supporters. Uh, that said, <laughs> no, I, the, the marketing has been fabulous and, and you can really tell how people, you know, love to see it and see it again. In many cases, that's become like the thing to do. Um, I don't know where people get the money, but you know, it's, <laughs> right? it's fine. It's fine. Um, that said, critics have not always been Andrew Lloyd Webber's biggest champions. And there were yeah. those who really seemed to have their knives out for this show. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll be candid and admit I haven't loved all of his work, but I, I had so much fun at this show. And, and for me, it was part of a pattern of his injecting more humor and whimsy into his musicals as he mm-hmm. gets older, which I've really liked. While also, in this case, offering a clear perspective that was very plainly shaped by two really smart women. Yeah. So um, I know you both have gotten some great notices for your performances. Were you surprised or disappointed by some of the reviews that were less positive overall? And, you know, how was that compared or contrasted with the feedback you've gotten from audiences? The audiences have been consistently wonderful. People come to this show to have a good time and they are. And that's that's really great to see. Like it's it feels good to go to work because people are are coming to support us. And, you know, I, I can't. I don't read my own review. I can't do that. I can't do that to myself um, <laughs> in, in any in any position. It's just that's my own little uh, thing to get over or not just deal with. But, you know, as a person who does, I do consume reviews of other things that I have seen. You know, I sometimes will say like, well, I had a thought about this. I wonder what other people are saying about it. I, I, I just think that sometimes reviewers don't necessarily show up to take in the thing. Um, on its own terms, you know, mm-hmm. I think sometimes there's a, well, that's not my taste, or I think a musical should be this, and this musical is not that, as opposed to meeting the thing where it is. What were, what was this thing setting out to do? Did it achieve the thing it was setting out to do? I don't think that happens all the time with reviews. And that's honestly, that's disappointing to me. Now I'm going to say, I didn't read these reviews, so I don't know. I don't know if, uh, if that's what was happening, but, um, that's just a pattern that I've, that I've seen sometimes. And, um, I think that what this show has set out to do is, first of all, entertain, which we we are, <laughs> we objectively are. And we can yeah. tell that because of the people who are showing up and are being entertained and are having a good time and are walking away singing the songs and are laughing and are feeling the joy of the retelling of, you know, this classic fairy tale, you know, I think that's my, that's where my period I, is. I agree <laughs> with Grace that it's so much more important to me what the audiences are feeling. I do re-reviews, unlike Grace. I, I mm-hmm. went home opening night after the party and read all the reviews that I could find. And uh, yeah, to answer your question, I was surprised at how sort of scathing they were because I just think you can't deny the fact that people are enjoying it as much as they are. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the people that came to write those reviews are not the people that are meant to see this show. That's all. And the, Mm -hmm. and the thousands of people that have seen it and loved it are so much more important to me than the people who are writing for newspapers. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I just thought the book was a lot sharper than it got credit for in some of those reviews. Um, you know, not belaboring the point, but I mean, mm-hmm. I there are other shows I've seen that I did not think were as sharp that, you know, certain critics seemed, well, I'm not going to go in that direction. 
<laughs> I just I just thought it was I, I I had a lot of fun, and so did the people that I was surrounded by there. Um, so we are sort of wrapping up. What kind of feedback have you gotten? Um, I mean, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of different feedback, but has anything been particularly meaningful or funny or entertaining um, from any of the people who've who've seen the show? Oh, I just think the the comments that I've heard are just that people are having fun. And I think that as much as that can sound trivial, you know, so much is happening in the world right now. That's just so hard to digest and handle in our everyday lives. And to just be able to go into a place with a thousand, 1500 other people and laugh and enjoy yourself and escape for two and a half hours, I think is invaluable right now. I completely agree, Carolee. And I think that that is an important medicine. And, you know, sometimes you need to have some medicine that, ooh, it really, oh, that hurts a little bit. And I got to really take some time to digest that medicine. And man, I love, I love um, imbibing theater in, in that way as well. But also to truly be able to, to laugh and to feel surprise and joy is important and and to feel that with yeah right a thousand other people that's what we're that's the feedback that we're getting from people and oh it feels really good it feels really good on a personal level just personally speaking for myself to be a part of something that is fun that's um yeah yeah i i like uh i like it <laughs> yeah. those are my bit that's the big takeaway <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's a heavy time right now. And um, on that note, I'm going to go now and look for those pictures of Putin in a ball gown. Um, <laughs> that, uh, so if I if I get pushed out a window or if I fall out a window for, for having said that, you'll you'll know what the what the deal yeah. is. Poison um, in your your underpants. Look out! <laughs> I'm on the 31st floor. So uh, thank you again so much for joining us, taking time out of your very busy schedules, playing these uh, very interesting women. Carolee, Grace, thank you both so much for joining us today. We are very much looking forward to what you both do next. Thanks so much for having us. Lisa, thank you so much. You're very welcome. And for all things Broadway, and to find tickets to your next show, visit broadwaydirect.com. If you liked our show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And don't forget to share and rate Stage Door Sessions so that other theater fans can find us as well. This podcast is produced by Broadway Direct and the Niederlander Organization with Iris Chan, Aaron Provosnik-Wagner, and Paul Art Smith, and hosted and produced by me, Elisa Gardner. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to seeing you again on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs>